Hello, media watchers, Hayden Donnell. Hello, Emil. What's the score in the cricket? Uh, just looking at it, 78 for two. Uh, we got David Warner out. That's good. That's and good. that's the main thing. That is the in the thing. cricket, I always say the main thing is that David Warner is not in and that we ruin his retirement tour. <laughs> no, um, while triumph is good, the failure of your enemies is even better. That's, that's what you're living for. Um, let's talk media stuff, Hayden, because it is Midweek Media Watch. And, um, well, I mean... We should really probably start with the death of Ephesol Collins. Um, it was a big thing for media to respond to today. Yeah, I don't want to go on with the rest of the show with this unremarked. I I had a bit to do with Ephesol uh, through my reporting on local government. I think I reported when he announced his decision to stand for the Greens as well. And I just everyone who's met him, he was he was a, just a genuinely kind man. And that seems like an unremarkable thing. It seems an unremarkable, but it was remarkable the way that he was kind. And most people, especially politicians, are driven by some form of hostility. He seemed to be mainly motivated by a, a real palpable warmth. Well, yeah, I mean, an observation that I've heard quite a bit today is, and that links in with what you're saying there, I think, is that a lot of people who work in politics professionally for an extended period of time probably get in with good intentions but perhaps become somewhat corrupted by the institution of politics well it's, i guess it's what we we're talking about before with david warner it's a, it's vanquishing your enemies and yeah. i don't think that he never gave that impression that he wanted to vanquish his enemies wayne brown came out with a statement today saying they actually became good friends i saw that when they're on the campaign trail that's true wayne said that to me in private <laughs> not just an it's not just a statement for the press they really did become friends and that's really testament because to a vessel's warmth because they are very different people mm. and i think the, the the most of his warmth though was reserved for his family who he would mention at any opportunity anyone who knows him would know that he did if he could bring up his wife and his daughters in particular, he would. So that's one thing that was highlighted today. And I saw a clip from um, the former News Talk ZB Aaron, uh, reporter Aaron Darman really illustrated the best, uh, that the best, I think. So this is, this is that clip. There's a letter here that Capriella wrote to us from on behalf of Erin Asalemo, our daughters. And she said, Dad, I'm proud of you. I never heard those words from my own father because it's probably not a Samoan dad thing to do, knowing that my baby is proud of me is enough to keep going. Yeah, he just loved them and obviously they were his whole reason for doing what he did. It's such a tragedy. Mm. Um, if there is an element of media criticism around this story it is i suppose that the news did come out pretty quickly there was a bit of concern that uh if Vesor's family had not been notified or that they could have been notified through the media yeah because yeah. the the reports were pretty quick they quoted care workers at the scene that confirmed the death and they well the reports noted that those care workers were visibly emotional 
So they're possibly in shock and maybe not thinking through all the ramifications of them talking. Mm. It was a quick news gathering process. And uh, from but, but from what we can understand, Colin's family were appropriately notified. They didn't learn of this through the media. But there's still the suspicion that they could have. And uh, or that, that if things had gone differently, that they could have. Uh, the former RNZ presenter, Marnie Dunlop, mentioned this. And she asked a question on Twitter. She said, editors, take a good look at processes going forward. Clambering for witnesses' photos at the scene immediately is rushing to headlines over family being told respectful and in the public interest. Mm. I don't know. What do you think? It, it is always, I, I, um, I think, an element of journalism that the public probably don't like very much is the scramble to confirm... Uh, we we should probably establish that this is this is definitely a news story. Yeah, it's in the public interest. A, a sitting MP has died. Of course, yep. that is going to have to be reported. Parliament is the, the public's voice. It's where we make our laws. Uh, an MP dying is uh, is in the public interest. It's a news story for sure. The question is whether it's in the news, uh, the public interest for them to know at eleven o two a.m. as opposed to eleven o five when the family and you know that the family has been notified. And I don't think that necessarily is in the public interest. Mm. And if there was a way to make sure that actually the family has been notified before we go out with this kind of thing, it would be a good thing, in my opinion. Especially when it's something like this, where it's just someone's uh, untimely death. Mm. It's not a murder. It's not a danger for the public. There's not a disaster happening like an earthquake or a volcano. Uh, That would be good. I just don't see whether it would be practically possible more than whether it's Mm. ethically desirable. And and I think maybe one of the elements that people do find distasteful is the rush to be the first to confirm a new st- story, mm. um, which I do understand. And there's something a bit distasteful about that rush. And, and the, we're in journalism, when you're in the industry, there's a bunch of stuff that you kind of have to do, and it's sold to you as just part of the public interest uh, function of the profession, yeah. what's called in the industry, probably quite distasteful. The name Death Knocks, Death Knocks yeah. is one of those things where you knock on the door of a grieving family and they, they, your editors will tell you that's because we, we, we're here about, and you might not like it, but we're here to tell stories. Mm. Uh, I, I feel that there's more of an economic justification for those things than an ethical one, to be honest. In this case, though, it's a public interest story. And unless there is um, agreement from all of the media organizations in New Zealand, I don't know how you're going to necessarily institute rules that will make sure that the family aren't going to be informed through a news notification. Because if, for instance, Just Stuff doesn't want to rush into these kinds of breaking news situations, then one of their competitors certainly will. How are you even going to organize it? It's sort of a hard expect, doesn't it, almost to the days where maybe there were two papers in town and if your competitor had a story and you didn't have that story, then they would sell out and your paper wouldn't. And so there is an economic imperative to be first. Whereas in, in the age of push notifications and digital news, you, you can match a story very, very quickly and put out your own. It's Yeah, it's far lessened 
but there, I think there is still that economic uh, imperative in their mind in that you they want to be at the top of the Google search results oh. and they want to be first. And maybe it is just a hangover of those days in some ways, but there is some economic imperative there. Uh, it, it, it's whether... It's, it's, it, it just adds an extra complication, right? There's breaking news. We're going to cover it. That's a very easy process and a very easy decision to make. Mm. Uh, there's breaking news. We need to go through these protocols before we can decide whether to cover it. That's a very difficult thing, and mm. it's already a stressful situation. I don't know whether it's practically feasible. And this is a very unusual case as well in that um, it happened in public. It, generally, particularly with the death, the police might serve as a, um, you know, the police might not confirm someone's death until they had notified the family yeah, in these exactly. circumstances, right? So. These sorts of situations are probably not that common. Mm. Uh, uh, but yeah, it is, uh, it is really unfortunate. And as someone that has a family, that the idea of mm. them getting a notification or finding, I mean, or finding out about the death of my loved one through the media, like it would be horrifying. Mm. So yes, it would be really good if we could avoid that and if we could put processes in place, but I think it would require agreement between various news organisations. Let's talk about polls. Um, you were going to start by talking about the coverage of, of polls before today's tragic news. What did you want to talk about? Yeah, well, the the fate of ACT and multiple polls. So we started out with a Courier Taxpayers Union poll on February 10, which showed ACT on 13.7%. And of course, that was straight after quite a divisive Waitangi Day weekend. A lot of the focus was on ACT's efforts to put forward a treaty principles bill. And several commentators made the link between that contentious debate and ACT's result. The Herald in particular, its reporter Thomas Coughlin, he tweeted, ACT is the big winner in the most recent Taxpayer Union Courier poll. The focus on the Treaty Principles Bill looks like it's helping the party, and that was echoed in the paper itself. Its report said the ACT Party and its leader, David Seymour, appeared to have reaped the dividends of a heated Waitangi Day period, rocketing up to 13.7%. Stuff to their credit actually didn't do this, and uh, they just reported the results straight. They didn't say this is why the results are the way they are. Now, some left-leaning people on social media were offended that this poll was being reported in this way because it's a taxpayer union courier poll. And mm. if you don't know those organisations, the taxpayer union, of course, is the taxpayers union. It is quite right leaning. Uh, courier is founded by David Farah, National Party pollster. Uh, but it has it was actually a relatively reliable poll in the lead up to mm. last year's general election. It, it tends to be one of the two most it reliable polling signs codes. signs up to the New Zealand polling code, that kind of thing. Mm. I think the real issue for me was making any kind of judgment about the voters' true beliefs and exactly what's informing their decisions based on the results of one poll, especially without any data confirming that that was what was motivating them. Um, and there have been several polls since then that have painted a very different picture, Hayden. Exactly. So first we had a leaked poll by Labour's preferred polling agency, Talbot Mills. It showed ACT on 7%, pretty dire. Then last night we had One News and it put out its first One News variant poll of the year. It had ACT at its lowest result in two years at 8%. And that prompted Deputy Political Editor Mikey Sherman to make this assessment. The treaty debate doing no favours for ACT. It continues to slide down 1.8%. This is the worst result for ACT in almost two years. Oh, 
Yeah, two conflicting, conflicting messages. Yeah. Yeah, or, or directly contradictory messages there. Treaty debate doing no favours or treaty debate elevating act to 13.7%. I mean, we do look for order and chaos, don't we, and explanations and things like that, though. Yeah, it's the human brain. I know yeah. that you do a little bit of sort of pseudo-psychology on this programme, don't you, <laughs> uh, Emil? But we are meaning-making machines. We like to craft narratives out of stuff, and we often we have a recency bias. We have a whole host of cognitive biases at play uh, but i am struck by the way our interpretation of these polls and it's not just this poll mm-hmm. but every poll is almost seems about as uh methodologically robust as spreading some chicken entrails on the table lighting some sage consulting the spirit realm like how do we know that the, the voters necessarily were motivated by x stance on the treaty principles bill to reject them or to elevate them to 13.7%. We don't really have any data to suggest that. It's just what was happening lately. And actually, the voters are kind of weird. Anyone who's actually met one will know that because they'll have a whole host of idiosyncratic views on a whole bunch of stuff and they'll be motivated because uh, the price of sheep and Belclutha or something, you know, it's not necessarily... They're not as plugged into politics of the day. So I just think there's probably a case for a degree of caution here, drawing messages out of one poll. So you say Statistically, if we, in the first place, we should be looking at the long-term average of polls rather than an individual one. But also, to, to, to say exactly what the voters are thinking, we don't. So, no. right. So it, it's sort of, your objection is making sweeping inferences off the basis of one poll or imperfect information that is asking questions where, you know, the reasonable expectation of... of we say things like New Zealanders are feeling this way or the base national voter is feeling this way. Mm. And if we're saying that, we should have some data underpinning it. We should have something underpinning it rather than just a vibe. Because what are we? We're reporters. We're meant to report on facts. But this is just... It just feels like we are consulting the spirit realm or inherited knowledge of po- politics to report on what New Zealanders are thinking if we don't have data underpinning that. By the way, that's not just polls. Uh, we should not jump the gun on stuff like reporting election uh, results as well. I mm. saw that uh, Geordie Rogers won the... Interesting <laughs> one, that one, yeah. Lampton, uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, 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 the Pukahino Lampton by-election today, and we had reports a week or so ago, saying Ice Cream Man, this is the headline from stuff, Ice Cream Guy wins Wellington Council by-election. Right. Well, mm. he hadn't and he didn't. Mm. Uh, maybe we shouldn't jump the gun on that stuff either. Um, I mean, do you think that we are focusing a bit much on the polls at this stage of the electoral cycle? I mean, Colin, I won't repeat what he actually commented on my script, but it had a swear... It was something, it had the word yes in it. And the naughty word. And possibly something in front of that word as well. Right. He obviously believes, so I think we do, we are, because it's meaningless, right? Everything is going to change in three years. Well, is it meaningless? It's, it's polls are valuable as part of a trend. Yes. Right? Like, and so I guess maybe no individual poll is in and of itself meaningful, 
but you have to continually be doing polls in order for the trend to be valuable, don't you? Yeah, you're right there, actually. That makes a decent statistical case that we need to have that. Uh, is it going to be valuable over that kind of period, a three-year period? Maybe. Because we whinge about how we don't have enough polling in New Zealand um, yeah. for it to be reliable and the polls always being off. Well, we got to have polls in order and, for the And polls. this one is re- uh, interesting as well because you're measuring whether they've got the post-election bounce, which is a, a thing that most governments get in mm. this case. They didn't, so that's interesting to know that they did. And I do like. I think you're right. I I quite like them. They're at least interesting. They well, are. Interesting, they're interesting. Yeah. It's something to talk about. But the something to talk about factor is kind of problematic in a way because we do that stuff. We do that meaning making. We start sh- creating a narrative of this couple of very isolated. We haven't got the trend. We've just got one or two polls. I, and we're going, oh, should Chris Hipkins resign? Is the Treaty Principles Bill is it working? Uh, there's not enough data to really do that. And they start to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. A narrative gets crafted off them. That becomes the political media's narrative. That narrative then becomes a reality because it's being reported by the political media and so on and so forth. So that's kind of the issue that I see with them. Maybe, Hayden, maybe it's to do with sort of the way that poll data is presented, which often seems to be with a lot of fanfare, um, Oh my God, this poll is unbelievable. Um, you know, buy some plane tickets for your family and children because New Zealand might spontaneously implode with these numbers. And that's that we've because got. they've paid. They've paid a lot of money. Through the, what is it? Through the eyeballs? Through the, what is it? Through the nose. I through the nose, is. not the eyeballs. I don't think but- so. <laughs> through some kind of orifice. Well, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. through the. Well, I mean, yes, stylistically, and uh, that's the news. I actually kind of like that style from News Hub. Again, I'm probably diverging from Colin here, but I quite like the. This poll will melt your face <laughs> off. <laughs> do, do not wear your sunscreen before <laughs> taking in the results of this poll because it's like the rays of the sun. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, that's an interesting stylistic point that you make as well, because we had Mikey Sherman, the deputy uh, political editor for One News, presenting the One News poll for the first time, I think, uh, last night. And she was a bit more razzmatazz than Jessica Much Mackay. So here she is talking about the preferred prime minister numbers. Now here's the real clincher. Preferred Prime Minister, check this out. Christopher Luxon is steady at 25%, but ding, 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 ring the alarm bells. Chris Hipkins has nosedived, his popularity plummeting a whopping 10 points on 15%. He's standing on shaky ground. Oh, there is a bit of razzmatazz to that. Yeah, a little bit more razzmatazz than Jessica Much Mackay, maybe distinguishing herself a little while. I think there could be a little bit more distinguishing, though, because this was a very competent effort, but it was quite quite formulaic. It stuck to the existing One News Varian formula. One thing that I do wonder, and look, there's probably a whole host of reasons why this is infeasible and I'm stupid and I don't know broadcasting, Mm -hmm. but... For me, what's actually more interesting with these polls often is the results that you get the next day, which are surveying the public on what they think about various issues, You know, mm. whether they like a capital gains tax or the Treaty Principles Bill, or whether they want a referendum on the treaty. I'd love to see those kind of incorporated into the main poll results uh, to add a bit of colour and shade to them, to explain, well, to do what I was talking about before and actually add a bit of data uh, to some of the 
the things that we're positing about the poll results to say, well, actually, voters do care about this. This may be influencing the decision. Who knows? Maybe Mikey will do that if she gets the job. Uh, the other big political, their job being the TVNZ political editor role, mm. which Jessica March Mackay um, is, is vacating. Uh, you might have seen that already. I just thought I'd clarify that. Um, but there's another big political story this week, um, the benefit system reset, and you wanted to highlight an aspect of the commentary that caught your attention, Hayden. Yeah, this is just a little bit of a, I guess, a bugbear of mine, something that I noticed. Uh, and that is uh, people saying, and some of the commentary, so Claire Trevette, I'll say, one of my favourite political journalists, writing, insightful, often funny, she's sourced up, she's trustworthy. Most importantly of all, she agreed to do an interview with me for my show Get It To To Papa about mm-hmm. the white tangy dildo and the need to get that into Papa. So she's great, but her analysis on National's benefit announcement made heavy use of that old phrase, it may not be good policy, but it's good politics. Variations on that. Uh, she called Louise Upston's letter to the Ministry of Social Development largely theatre, but she said it was good politics. The policy itself may not be well thought out, she thought, but it plays well with National's base. And she wasn't alone in that, so some of the same points were made by RNZ political editor Joe Moyer on Morning Report. I think Christopher Luxon's taken an opportunity here alongside his National Party Minister Louise Upston to really have the oxygen on this one. You have seen both Winston Peters and David Seymour being sucking up so much of that government oxygen of late over the last few months um, in the first sort of, uh, what are we, 80 odd days of the um, 100 day plan. This was a really easy, I guess, opportunity for National to, to put some runs on the board, really. Right. So... I guess, yeah, the argument against that is that, you know, the political press is there not just to report verbatim what's said, but to explain the politics of, you know, why politicians are acting the way that they are um, and what they are maybe thinking behind the scenes. It's not justifiable. Kind of float above it in a way. I, I, I think there's kind of an element of truth to that. I just do get a little bit worried about it. For one thing, when you say something, when, when you say something is good politics, it's often just inherited wisdom or it's anecdata, basically. It's I talked to a couple of people down at a field days and they said this. It's not scientific per se. It, but I think it sometimes it also ignores the media's role in shaping what makes for good politics. Mm-hmm. We have a powerful influence here. Maybe if we focused on describing and explaining policies rather than philosophizing on their potential political popularity, some things that are now good politics wouldn't be good politics. Well, it's also, it's a little bit snake eating its tail in a way, isn't it? And that um, what you might describe as, in inverted media terms, good politics, that's sort of shorthand for stuff that your voting base will like and will make them more likely to continue voting for you in the future, i.e. stuff that is likely to get you re-elected. And in order to put policies in place, you need to get elected first, right? Yeah, and I often feel a little bit sort of naive and silly saying this, but it, uh, for me, it, it's not, it feels like the wrong focus. It's what Jay Rosen, a US uh, media commentator, calls the savvy style, where you, journalists kind of float above a policy and just, they don't deliver any judgment on whether it's good or bad or right or wrong. They just say, oh, well, it's good uh, at winning over this particular electorate or this voting base. And Really what our job should be in terms of what is is saying, this is what the policy is going to do. This is where its flaws are. This is where its good parts are. This is where its benefits are. And that's our job as journalists, right? Rather than kind of having a little bit of a, 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 
like positing what the, the potential electoral impact of it could be. But that be. comes with its own jeopardy, right? Then you're making value judgments about what are good and flawed parts and of politics. And this is where this interaction of this view of neutrality mm. uh, uh comes with with because people think that neutrality is never making a judgment or never saying something is right or wrong no it's just not being a stooge it's not mm. it's not just going into bat for your own team it's being willing to criticize everything and hold everything's feet to the fire and uh yeah i i think it kind of also cuts off avenues of investigation sometimes because in this case it wasn't really that good politics in some ways we had christopher luxon on the back foot uh, when it turned out he was saying that cancer patients need to work. And uh, if we're just saying it's good politics, maybe we won't ask that question necessarily. Obviously, the media did. Not everyone thought it was just good politics. But, uh, yeah, uh, that's my other issue with it. I know we're running out of time. We are. Should we go? Let's go Woolworths, eh? Oh, should we? <laughs> Woolworths? Yeah, okay. let's go to Woolworths. Uh, We've got two well, minutes left. I'll say, look. Four Corners, an ABC investigative unit over there, they did an investigation that might sound uh, familiar to people. Apparently there's a supermarket duopoly over there exercising too much market power and it might be uh, driving some suppliers out of business. And look, can we? do we have time for yeah, the Yeah, we do. Yeah, let's this start. is Woolworths uh, Chief Brad Bandushi uh, talking to Angus Grigg. He retired 18 months ago. He's not... Okay, let's... Well, can we take that out? Is that okay? I should... I mean, he, he is retired, but I, I shouldn't have said that, Angus. Are, you, are we going to leave it in there if we are? Well, I mean, if, if we're on the record. You said it. I mean, you know, let's let's move on. But, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I think I'm done, guys. Uh, you know, I, I do this with good intent. You know, I don't do this with bad intent. No. You're walking out, really? No, no, no. Can we just talk to no, no, Brad for a second? That was Brad Banducci uh, attempting to walk out of an interview after getting some uh, tough questions about competition. And now, look, he resigned today. Mm. And Woolworths is at pains to say it was a pre-planned thing. It was totally, not, totally yeah, not nothing related. To do with this. Nothing to do with it at all. <laughs> He's just retiring, guys. It's nothing to do with him uh, getting into an absolute spot of bother on the on the TV the other night. Uh, so I hope that the and my audience is reassured by that and takes that in. Interesting that he fronted for an interview with Four Corners, though. You don't yes, get that often and that's the, the other thing. Dita Deboni from the NBR mentioned this, but we don't see supermarket boss, bosses fronting over here too much, do we? Mm-hmm. Actually, Brad Banducci might actually be technically our big supermarket boss as the chief executive of Woolworths, owner of Countdown. Well, um, we can't we can't interview him now. But he hasn't he hasn't talked about New Zealand prices. He's only talked about Australian ones. Thank you, Hayden. Thank you very much. It's Hayden to now.